Hello, and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast, powered by Alex on Autos. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Did you miss us? We missed you. It's Alex and Tim. We're kicking off with beleaguered EV startups, mid-sized trucks, and of course, we're going to talk about the price of cars in 2023. Alex, EV startups, we're not counting Tesla. They're now part of the establishment. What's going wrong with everyone else in the space? Yes, and and does the absence and the uh, the EV startup going wrong make your heart want to buy a Honda? That's you know instead of <laughs> growing fonder. But let's see. Yeah, Lordstown Workhorse, Fisker, etc., all on pretty rocky beginnings here, rocky footings, I should say. And there are a ton of EV startups that have yet to get off the ground because now they're just looking for money. They have a pretty drawing, maybe some CAD stuff, maybe a battery plan, but no actual product. Uh, Lordstown has a few things rolling around, but frankly, you know, Fisker and some of these other companies, that's that's basically just in the the planning phase of things. Um, we, of course, have Rivian and Lucid that are actually selling cars, building cars, etc., but they're burning through cash pretty quick. Uh, Tim and I just looked this up. Uh, cash on hand, Lucid has gone through about $2 billion <laughs> over the last quarter, bringing them down to about $11 billion still on hand. That's pretty decent financial footing. But if the burn rate continues, they'll be out of cash by the end of 2024. Uh, if we slide into a recession, it might not be the best time to be selling $100,000 EV pickup trucks and SUVs. Lucid has even less, less cash on hand, maybe about $3.5 billion, but that may include a line of credit there. That may take them through the end of this year. Things are not looking good over there. Yeah, I think the problem with Rivian right now is that there. Let's go from like first to worst in terms of how these things are going. Mm -hmm. Rivian looks like it's going to deliver twenty thousand vehicles this year. That's a substantial achievement. Uh, they are backed by people and companies with real money. They still have over ten billion dollars in cash, which makes them by far the soundest of these startups. And they do have two products to sell. They've got the SUV. They've got the truck. The what the the products they have are right for the market mm -hmm. we don't know what it'll be like a few months down the line with tighter credit higher interest yeah. rates people less likely to spend but that's still better than being lucid now lucid it looks like at best it's going to deliver ten thousand vehicles this year which is on the low end of the projected 10,000 to 14,000 that they'd promised us they have a major problem with overproduction where for the last two quarters consecutive, they have been building more cars than they're delivering, which speaks Indeed. to a problem. And yeah. like Alex said, at best, their first or second quarter 2024, and they're plowing a ton of money into both production and development of the Gravity, which maybe should have been their first product. Indeed. Now is not the best time to be selling a sedan, especially an ultra expensive sedan. Sales of the Model S, they should have known this, sales of the Model S haven't exactly been flying off the charts for years. It's the Model 3 and the Model Y where the volume and, and the theoretical profit capability is. 
a big expensive sedan can be profitable once you've paid off all the the costs but evs are very expensive to develop as everybody has has discovered rivian is kind of an interesting case because they are selling desirable vehicles they still can't build enough so the desire is still there the market is still there for sure uh, there are still a few Rivian uh, order holders, uh, apparently, that have not received their original order yet either, even though a decent number have canceled and gone over to something like the F-150 Lightning, mind you. Um, but the desirability is still solidly there for that brand. Profitability, that seems to be tricky. They're really struggling to bring down the construction costs of the Rivian. And I have to say that part does surprise me a little bit because they had a lot more uh, ramp up in, in in staffing on the experienced automotive side. So people that really should have known how to build things are more heavily involved with Rivian than this same time period within Tesla, for instance. Uh, I'm not entirely clear why things are going a little bit wrong there, but there are some materials cost components that are concerning. So some of the raw materials costs have certainly gone up. Battery production costs have uh, costs have not gone in the right direction for some of these EV startups either. Um, you know, I, I I have a little bit more faith in Rivian at the moment, but I'm a little bit concerned with Lucid since there's so much promise for high efficiency there. If they do go wrong, I hope someone buys them. Honestly, I would love to live in a world where Toyota just buys them and rebrands the whole thing Lexus. That would solve <laughs> so many problems for both of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if Lucid really fits the ethos at Lexus, but the technology is solid at Lucid. I mean, the ultra aerodynamic approach, the very, very efficient motor approach, et cetera, fast charging, all of that is excellent. A lot of car companies would be lucky to have that kind of uh, R and D on staff. The production costs of some of that maybe are, is the problem here. You know. It, there's a reality that that what is ideal and what is efficient is not cost effective in, in every automotive circle. And this may be the perfect example of that. I think Lucid has so many great technologies. Like you said, there's the speed of charging, but there's also the Wonderbox, which is a wonderful kind of compatibility feature for global charging, no matter where you are, what you're plugging into. The motors are incredibly compact. They're like the size of basketballs. They're much more compact than what Tesla's using. The car has phenomenal range, but it does not have a huge battery pack, which is an incredible mm -hmm. feat of efficiency and systems engineering. And all of this has a lot of value. The problem with Lucid is just the cash burn rate, whereas, you know, obviously Rivian, which is building a new factory in Georgia, and probably doing more manual correction of their product post-assembly than they're willing to admit. Yes, it's true. They burned through 6.8% of their cash, but Lucid went through more than one-third of their cash yeah. pile. And, you know... And, and that's a good point, is that Lucid, is, or Rivian rather, is spending money on ramping production facilities yeah. up. So factories, they're not spending as much... Uh, on research and development as 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 lucid is as a percentage of what they're doing they're really focusing on the they've designed it now they're building it and that's where the cash burn is going so if theoretically that kind of thing stops i mean they're not going to be building a new factory every quarter so if the factory is done and production ramps up theoretically this could start to unwind for them yeah, once that factory in Georgia is done, we'll find out what we've really got in Rivian. Uh, mm -hmm. Also, once the Amazon van deliveries begin in meaningful numbers, we'll have a sense of whether they can generate other revenue and diversify. Lucid's a real problem, and Lucid's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mystery because the real question with Lucid isn't so much whether they're going to run out of cash, 
or continue to hemorrhage it. They, they will at the rate they're going, they will. The question is whether the Saudis have any interest in mm-hmm. the roughly 35% of the company that they don't already own. A quick primer yeah. for our audience, the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which is a sovereign wealth fund for Saudi Arabia, they own 62 to 65% of Lucid. This mm-hmm. fund has $620 billion in assets, and it was recently recapitalized with $78 billion in cash. They can fund Lucid out of pocket easily. The question is, will yeah, they do decades. so? <laughs> will they do so? Right. Because yes. the Saudi Wealth Fund is, is all about generating wealth in non-oil industries for the Saudi government and the royal family there. Uh, they don't like to lose money long term. They'll pour money into things that are going to win for them long term. But this is not some sort of pet project that the Saudis need to make them feel green and feel good about themselves. Um, that's not the mission of, of this particular investment product. Oh. The question is, is this all about greenwashing for a company that's built our country? I call it a company. It's a company and it's a country, but a country that's built entirely around petrochemical exports. Uh, you know, there's a lot of big projects going on in Saudi Arabia that are environmental showpieces. One of them is Neom, which is the big desert city they're constructing. And Lucid was supposed to be part of a Saudi electric car factory project that would build 100,000 lucid vehicles a year, which I suppose they could do if they really just wanted to push it through. But from a business standpoint, it seems a lot like pie in the sky now. So the question becomes, Mm -hmm. how much deeper do the Saudis want to go? And are they serious about building cars? Or is this like the LIV, you know, golf tournament? Is is it really just sort of an image builder for for the the kingdom? And we don't know yet. We won't find out until lucid is right up against it cash wise. I would suspect that it was probably initially a third option, which would be uh, IPO and then split. Um, you know, if Tesla's I, Tesla stock prices have gone nowhere but up, regardless of how Tesla's doing financially, profitability-wise, et cetera, their stock price seems to know no, no new heights in the grand scheme of things. And I believe that a lot of folks thought that was going to happen with Rivian and with Lucid. Um, it didn't end up that way. So that could have been their plan, could have been just, you know, IPO it and, and ride that IPO till you just want to extract billions and billions and billions out of it. So Rivian is building tens of thousands of vehicles and scaling up to build even more. It mm-hmm. has the right products for the market, though prices are high. Lucid will make thousands of cars this year. It's not vaporware. They're just burning through cash. Now we're talking about the Fiskers and the Lordstowns of the world. Mm-hmm. Fisker recently lowered its guidance for the year from a claimed roughly 42,000 vehicles to 36,000. And I would be shocked if they come anywhere near any of those numbers. Although they are delivering vehicles internationally, they are doing it. The idea that they're going to build twice as many electric vehicles as Rivian this year mm-hmm. seems farcical. Yeah, I don't believe that at all. Um, we'll see how how they go. It, it really appears that the established car companies are the only ones that are able to enter the EV game in any meaningful volume. Outside um, of China. Outside of Tesla, I would say. Yeah. Um, the and it's it's simply supply chain factory the the resources to 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 get what you need to make the product. Uh, we take a look at Ford. Ford is producing a decent number of Lightnings and Mach-E's. Uh, they paused Mach-E production because they're rearranging the factory to produce even more, and they do have the supplies to make that happen. Nowhere near in the volume that Tesla does, obviously, since Tesla's been in the business longer, but meaningful volume on the Lightning side. The other one that actually interests me is not General Motors with the Bolt, because they did sell a reasonable number of Bolts, and they're 
theoretically planning on a lot of Ultiums. We haven't seen that promise happen yet. It's actually Stellantis, who, who a lot of folks have thought has been behind in the EV race. But about a third of Wranglers are now plug-in hybrids. It is by far the best-selling plug-in hybrid in America. And number two is the Grand Cherokee. And this is not an inconsequential number of things with plugs and battery packs, since we're talking about a third of the vehicle that sells about a quarter million a year. So we're talking a, a reasonable number of batteries that are being shifted. And I didn't really think that was possible when they announced that. They have really gone from nowhere in the plug-in hybrid segment to to strangely successful numbers. Yeah, and I think there are basically three business models for succeeding as an EV maker right now. You can be a Chinese-based manufacturer in a market where there are huge incentives to go EV, and EVs mm -hmm. are now already a meaningful portion of all sales. So you can be a, a Chinese domestic market manufacturer that is playing up its advantages on the home front. Two, you can be Tesla, which got a 10-year head start on everyone and brought a product to market at a time when you could still um, basically build a pilot model, something that was an image yep. builder while you geared up for your profit maker. And then finally, you can be a legacy automaker that is financing its EV development with profitable ICE and ICE hybrid, including plug-in hybrid products like those, those Jeeps right. that you mentioned. Those are the three models for being a successful mm -hmm. mass market EV maker right now. And we don't see Rivian and Lucid and Lordstown and Fisker yeah. necessarily following any of those three paths. So with Lordstown, we had a weird sort of hybrid of a yes. consumer um, wheel motor pickup and a little bit of background guys, the Lordstown plant once upon a time made the Chevy Vega. Its last mass production product was the Chevy Cruze. It was sold by GM to a company that was behind the work, well, the, the workhorse brand, mm -hmm. which rebranded Lordstown and last fall received a huge sort of infusion of cash and sold a stake to Foxconn, which is the Taiwanese company most famous for assembling iPhones. And everyone thought, okay, that's probably going to get them to production. The problem is after deciding they were going to scrap the consumer version of their endurance pickup and just go pure fleet sales, they'd only delivered 37 of these trucks by February yeah. of 2023. And in the last few days, they've issued a going concern alert as Foxconn has announced it might be reneging on its part of the deal. I don't know if they even get to market beyond this point. Yeah, I, I'm going to say I doubt it there. The the best hope for them, which is seemingly a long shot, would be for them to just go bankrupt and be purchased, have the assets purchased by somebody. And I don't know who that somebody would be because this this market is really tricky. Commercial trucks, just there's not a lot of profit in this kind of vehicle to begin with. Um, and everybody in this segment already has something that they're interested in selling. There's the Ranger that's brand new, which we're going to talk about in a bit. There's the Colorado and Canyon, which is new, and they don't need a mid-sized thing of, of this type in that, that blend. Toyota's working on an EV version of the Tacoma. They've already told us that. And all the rumors are that uh, Stellantis is going to bring back a baby Ram. And what that baby Ram looks like, we don't know, but it's probably deep in development, if not completed by now. So they just don't need a, a, a Lordstown around. And you're running into a buzzsaw at Lordstown saying you're only going to sell to fleets when it mm -hmm. appears that both Chevy and Ford at a bare minimum 
have a fleet vehicle you can already order and in Ford's case already receive. Like yeah. you, you yeah. don't go up against the big three and half ton pickup trucks. Toyota discovered that with the Tundra and that was at least a conventional vehicle. Lordstown, I'm not sure there's anything worth buying other than the factory, which might be interesting to Foxconn if it wants to take some of these EV concepts it's been showing and make those in its own right. But I don't see any lingering value of the somewhat bizarre wheel motor half ton truck that, that yeah. developed. And the Lordstown truck is this this like almost half ton thing. It's not quite lightning sized. Um, and for a commercial work truck, it is on the oddly sized side of things. You know, it's the four door cab short bed thing, uh, which is very consumer oriented. Yeah, it seems very consumer oriented for a fleet fleet oriented truck. Um, but then the interior, I don't think is nice enough to be a consumer oriented truck, which could explain some of its direction. Um, it's a it's an odd duck. It seems that at this point, Lordstown is a factory to be purchased because I don't even think the IP is that valuable. No. So I want American workers to be employed. I want them to succeed, but to be continued on that front. Now, speaking of trucks, it may be that the midsize segment is the future, just as in the 1970s, we began to see a transition not to small cars, but smaller cars, cars like the Cadillac mm -hmm. Seville, the Lincoln Versailles. Well, today, half-ton trucks have become so expensive and so big that it's opened a window for manufacturers of midsize trucks. And it's important to note that last year in the U.S., Mid-sized truck sales declined by 4.4%. Full-sized trucks declined by 8.5%. That doesn't sound great until you realize that the market was down due to parts and supply chains. So the mid-sized segment shrunk less. And that could be a shadow of the future, as Ward's Auto says that uh, we're going to see about 6.8% growth in the global mid-sized pickup mark. Uh, market between 2019 mm -hmm. and 26, that's going to be an average. And that's important because American half-ton trucks right. don't sell globally. If you've got a mid-sized product, you can sell it here, but you can also sell it everywhere. Indeed. And, you know, the interesting thing that I thought on the sales numbers for the mid-sized segment, of course, we should have a little asterisk there that when when they're talking about the, the total sales for that segment, uh, they are including things like the Maverick, which is... Yeah. You know, it, it is technically still a midsize truck, but it's a, a weird segment buster because it effectively replaced the Fiesta in the lineup. It's the least expensive hybrid in America. It's a very inexpensive vehicle. So it, it attracts a different kind of customer than uh, the Ranger. And if we take a look at Ranger um, and the, the traditional entries, Ranger, Tacoma, Gladiator, Frontier, maybe Ridgeline, Colorado Canyon, et cetera, then the segment has had a bit more loss than than um, than the full-size truck segment. Uh, but we are seeing a lot of new models, and part of that is some of the model year changeover things that we're seeing, because this year we're getting a new Tacoma, we're getting a new Ranger, a new Colorado, the new Canyon. We probably will also see a new Ram entry in this segment. And then last year, we got a new Frontier. So basically everything in this segment except the Ridgeline is new. Um, and there are some very interesting trends. Uh, we just got details of the Ford Ranger, probably the worst kept secret since we knew the Ranger was coming. We already saw the international one. But now we know what the domestic Ranger is going to be. And here are the things that, that struck out to me. Uh, we are not just going to get the 2.7 liter turbo and the 2.3 liter turbo. I figured that we were going to get both of those. We're also going to get the 3 liter turbo in there. So 270 horsepower, 315 or 405 
in the Ranger. Uh, the 405 horsepower model is going to be just the Ranger Raptor, which we are getting finally in the U.S. All of them are going to have a 10-speed automatic transmission, only one body style. So one cab, one bed configuration, uh, which is interesting there. The interior is kind of a blend of F-150 and, and regular Ranger, at least available in the XLT, if not standard. Some of these details are still sketchy. We're going to get the big vertical-oriented tablet screen in the dash, full LCD instrument cluster, etc. So they're going big on LCDs big on turbocharged engines, and a lot of seemingly uh, scaled down F-150 in terms of capability and, and trim lines with that Raptor, with the full-time four-wheel drive system available, etc. Let's uh, go over those powertrains one more time. You said 405 for the Raptor, but for everyone else who's buying this, we're probably not going to splurge. Most of these are going to be sold with the two entry-level options. Mm -hmm. Just to review, the primary competitor, the Colorado, has... Uh, one four-cylinder engine. It starts at 237 horsepower, 259 pound-feet. Mm -hmm. Then you can step up to 310 horsepower, 430 pound-feet, and then you can you can get a little bit more. Like, pardon me. Um, it is 390 yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. for yep. everything but the ZR2. So 237, then 310, then 310 with an extra 40 pounds of horsepower yep. topping out at 430. What were those two entry-level uh, Ford powertrains, just to capture those one more time? Yeah, so the and it's worth noting that the Canyon is a little bit weird because of the GMC Canyon, you get the wide body, high lift, high stance, and the more powerful engine standard. So it's 2.7, is 310 horsepower, 430 pound-feet of torque all the time, even rear-wheel drive. So that's kind of a fun option there. And you get the detuned versions in the in the Chevy. Um, but the Ford is going to start with 270 horsepower, 310 pound-feet of torque. So a little bit less powerful than the top-end options there for sure. But the 2.7-liter twin-turbo is a it's a v6 so it's going to be smoother uh but you get 315 horsepower five more horsepower a little bit less torque 400 pound feet of torque but you get a standard 10 speed automatic not the eight speed and the eight speed i do find disappointing in the colorado and canyon i think it should have had more gears it's it's an interesting choice there have been some questions about the 10 speed of ford's manufacture those mm -hmm. are kind of outside the scope of this discussion but especially on a new model it's something to pay attention to if you are interested in buying this vehicle now as alex mentioned if you're getting the gmc canyon uh it seems like the theme with the chevy and gmc mid-sized trucks has been fewer options every version of the chevy gets a version of a four-cylinder engine and every mm -hmm. version of the canyon gets one specific engine there are also fewer trim levels on the Canyon. Uh, it's better equipped, of course, but there are fewer trim levels. It surprises me that Ford has gone with two completely different engine architectures, while GMC and Chevy have one for everything, basically. Yeah, I think there there does seem to be a logical manufacturing reason for this. The first one is global sales volume. So Ford sells more Rangers globally than GM does. The weird split between a Chevy Colorado and a GMC Canyon is also kind of problematic for them because even though they share a lot, it still costs more to create this variation in the lineup to have these two branded vehicles uh, crash tested separately, fuel economy tested because they have different bumpers, et cetera, things like that. Obviously, the different sales channels and all that cost money as well. So for relatively similar cost, they could have just had a Chevy with more variety of engines. That's definitely true. The other thing is that the platform that we have in the Colorado and Canyon designed for worldwide applications doesn't seem to have been designed for some of the larger engines that GM has in their lineup. And they don't really have anything 
um, in the size format that uh, that Ford does with these more compact uh, V6 engines that they have in their lineup. Um, you know, GM has the naturally aspirated V6 in their lineup. They have some twin turbo engines in the Cadillac lineup, things like that. But they've never created truck versions of those, so they could have you know, maybe tried to squeak a, a Cadillac V series or or one of those twin turbo V6s under this hood. Might have been a little bit large, though. Yeah, I think the, the only real option they would have had if they wanted to make a lot more power would have been uh, to fit something like, you know, what you'll find in a CT4 V or Blackwing. Exactly. Basically, a twin turbo engine that'll occupy mm-hmm. the space. But they seem to have gone with commonality and and mm-hmm. world truck notions. And it is important to note that they have a substantial head start. Last year, despite its dominance in half-ton trucks in the United States, Ford only sold 57,000 Rangers, whereas mm-hmm. Colorado sold 89,000. And if you add the GMC Canyon, that's another 27,000. And that's, that's with an older Canyon. So... Yeah. Ford. It's been basically, I think, uh, I think it was 20, 2021 was the last time that Ford Ranger outsold Colorado, right? Something like that. Yeah. Ford needs to offer more because they're making up lost ground. And surprisingly, neither one of them is really competitive with the sales of the Tacoma, which mm-hmm. is just a juggernaut, despite not being really refreshed since 2016. So I guess here are the questions. Is Chevy, is GM broadly going to benefit from being first with a new truck architecture in this segment? And will Ford yeah. and Toyota pay for arriving late, or can they say they got to benchmark the competition? I I would say that there's probably enough room in this in this sales you know blend here for Ford to reclaim the win over over Chevy. Uh, in, in fact, if we look back to 2000, 2021, 2020. Ford sales were just about as good as GMC and Chevy combined. So decent, decent volume there, I would say. It, this is part of why we see such little variation in the Canyon, mind you. Canyon sells about a quarter of what the, the Colorado does. Um, but I it, I think it'll be depend on what exactly we see from Toyota in a way. I think that that the the Ford direction of having more engines, more screen available. I think that's a solid win for them. The Raptor is obviously going to attract a lot of folks. Chevy is still working on ZR2 um, brand recognition as well as AT4X with GMC. The the sales blend is building there, but we're talking smaller numbers. And Ford had such a runaway success with Raptor that they have Raptored everything. I think I'm waiting for a Ford Explorer Raptor because you know that's probably coming up soon. Maybe a Ford Fusion Raptor is going to happen in China or something. Um, but that definitely has helped like Bronco. Bronco Raptor sales have been solid. Yeah, I think Ford's got the right idea by offering a little bit more because, and we'll talk about this down the line when we talk about pricing, there's probably more room for people to get into a premium midsize than Mm -hmm. to spend any more money than they're spending now on the full-size segment. So offering something that's a bit smaller and less expensive but still a Raptor is probably a good move. Uh, Let's talk about two topics in midsizes that that came to mind. We're seeing the phase-out of diesel in the midsize segment. Chevy, for example, is not going to be offering it. Now that turbo fours and turbo sixes make so much low end torque and diesel prices, though lower, are still nuts. Is there any space for diesel in the midsize segment? It doesn't really appear to be uh, there. There's some emissions compliance issues worldwide for diesel in, in established markets like North America and Europe. So there's definitely a diesel emissions challenge in these markets. Then there's the cost side of things. By the time you factored in the extra cost of the diesel engine to begin with, 
Um, and then the fact that you got to feed it diesel, which is more expensive in urea, the fuel economy benefit that you may see is largely washed away. And there doesn't really seem to be much of a durability dependability argument to be made in this segment like there is in the in the three quarter ton and one ton segment. Uh, so here it does not appear that that we're going to really be seeing much, much diesel uh, going on. What is interesting is that uh, it all indications point to Toyota giving us an all turbocharged engine lineup. And I should say to our viewers that we are what we're recording this video uh, the week before I go see the new Tacoma. So there will be more detail coming out soon on that. And I believe it's May 19th is when we're actually allowed to talk about it. Uh, but all indications point to the Tacoma being all turbocharged, most likely the 2.4 liter turbo from the Toyota and Lexus lineup. So expect less power out of that engine than we find in the Colorado or the Canyon or the Ranger. Most likely it's going to be about 250 horsepower or so then there is probably going, well, we actually know there's going to be a hybrid, but it's probably going to be a variant of what we see in the Tundra, not the Tundra's hybrid system transplanted into it, at least not for the moment. It's most likely going to be the 2.4 liter turbo with the transmission, et cetera, out of the others, their hybrid max drivetrain system. Uh, and then there's theoretically going to be an EV version of the Tacoma at some point later. They've already announced that. They've already given us pictures, essentially, of the, the prototype, and those match all the leaked photos that we've seen of the Tacoma. We are going to be getting two different body styles. So that's the one thing that we don't see in the GM or the Ford options in the US yes. right now. Uh, you know, shorter cab, longer bed, you'll still be able to get that combo in the Toyota. And there'll be a manual transmission offered, uh, which is not going to be offered in the Ranger or the Colorado or Canyon. So now what I find interesting about this space is that whereas the half-ton pickup truck segment is highly standardized and everyone has an equivalent of everyone else's models and trims, there's a lot of non-standard weird stuff in the midsize mm -hmm. segment. Everything from the Ridgeline to the Maverick to the Santa Cruz to the Jeep Gladiator. Is there just more room to experiment in this segment? Or, I mean, does that just come down to it being more of a consumer-oriented segment with less of, you know, the commercial user base that helps to standardize the full-size trucks? It's probably a blend. Um, you know, we do see Toyota dominating the segment with a, an astronomical segment of the share. So uh, of the sales segment, rather. So this does seem to mean that other car companies coming in are trying to define themselves. They're trying to create room for them in the segment. So with with GMC, they've decided to go with all all options have the off road style bumper with the carve outs for the front tires to improve approach angles. All of them are going to be the higher and wider and more powerful version. And there's going to be the luxury version, the Denali, et cetera. Uh, with the Gladiator, they're definitely focusing on Wrangler with a pickup truck bed, which is solid yeah. for them, of course. So if you want the ultimate rock crawling option, you want to take your doors off, your roof off, et cetera, that's the Gladiator. And it's the only one in the segment for that. But it is expensive. Then, of course, we have Toyota really exploring out with new off-road trims. So we aren't just going to be getting the TRD and TRD Pro versions, etc. We're going to be getting more aggressive off-road versions from Toyota right from the factory with the new Tacoma as well. Uh, Nissan's really targeting cheap and cheerful with the Frontier. So it's not a complete, complete redesign. It's a pretty solid redesign with a new engine. If you want a naturally aspirated V6, that's basically your option there. And then Ford is going in a different direction off-road with the Raptor, which is something that we've seen in the Bronco as well. So these are more Baja dune jumping uh, format trucks rather than rock crawling. If you want to do Moab, you could probably do that in the Raptor. Most likely it will be just fine, but the Gladiator is going to be more focused on that task, less focused on 
you know, Baja 5000 style things. And you could just do your Bronco Raptor or your, um, your, your Ranger Raptor right from the factory in a Baja race and you'd be just fine. The other thing that's interesting to me is that Ford sort of created a segment buster with the Maverick. Now, on paper, it's not all that different from something like the Hyundai Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. but the Santa Cruz seems very much like a development of a car. It seems like an overgrown Subaru Baja, whereas the Maverick seems like it's maybe a shrunken Ranger. First, you need a compact SUV platform if you want right. to build a Maverick because it's built off the Escape. Uh, Stellantis doesn't obviously have something like that with the Cherokee going away. In theory, Chevy's got some midsize SUV mm -hmm. platforms. The question is, would Chevy, would Ford, would Toyota, would they get into this segment? I mean, Ford is committed, but is it going to have company? That's what I really want to know. Yeah, the the question will be because the Stellantis has said that there will be a midsize truck in the lineup. Uh, oddly enough, they've actually basically said that it's coming. It's a matter of when and what. It is unlikely to be a Maverick-style competitor, however. Uh, they do have platforms it could ride on. There's a whole host of French and, and uh, Italian platforms. I mean, the Jeep Compass uh, still is, a, is, is, in, is an entry in this segment. Uh, they could always shrink down the Grand Cherokee platform relatively easily because the Maverick is actually not far off the size of the three-row Grand Cherokee. Mind you, it's the size of a Ford Explorer. So you could take a three-row Grand Cherokee, chop the back off, and be a Maverick-sized competitor. Uh, the trouble with uh, entry in that size a segment would be in a, in a way price tag. So it's you need a cheap platform that's high fuel efficiency to make that work. Stellantis has a platform that maybe they could, uh, you know, poke and prod and make the right size, uh, or they could just borrow a Fiat truck from another global market and bring here. But fuel economy would be tricky on some of those. Yeah, frankly, they would also have, I hate to say it, but they'd have to be tooled up to make it in Mexico because a big mm -hmm. part of the economic argument behind the Maverick is that right. it is is very low labor costs. And that's um, not a and that's not a huge issue I would say. You know, moving production for uh, you know the Fiat Doblo or you know or, or, or now actually spacing on its name here whatever the little Fiat thing is. Moving production from South America to Mexico probably would not be the biggest problem in the world. I mean, they could just move worldwide production there or move more some portion of worldwide production there. That's not the biggest problem. Cafe regulations and all of that other part are, are probably a bigger problem for them. It yeah. might make more sense for them to resurrect a mid-sized truck rather than a compact, a quote-unquote compact truck. I mean, we're definitely going to see a Ram successor to the old Dodge Dakota. That's mm -hmm. absolutely happening. The question is whether companies are going to create a new standardized compact class of trucks where you're going to see just Mavericks everywhere. The same yeah. way for years, the Germans would have, you know, a three series, a five series and a seven series an Audi. And of course, yeah. Mercedes would have exactly the same thing. I don't know if the truck segment here is going to become that standardized where we have super duty, we have half ton, we have midsize and we have compact. It definitely mm -hmm. seems like there's potential there. And that sort of flows into our next topic, mm -hmm. which is pricing. Yeah. Midsize trucks in 2022, as of the middle of the year, the average midsize truck was about $40,000 and the average full size truck half ton was about 60. Mm -hmm. When you look at that price gap, you see why there is a huge future in midsize trucks. These are going to yeah. be the trucks people are buying good times or bad. It's going to be a lot less cyclical. Right. And, prices and you can are see, up. and you can see why the Maverick has done well because it is not a compact truck; it is a midsize truck. I mean, it's only a few inches off of Ranger, so 
Uh, that's that's probably the most critical thing to remember about Maverick is it's about 10 inches shorter than a Ridgeline, but that's not uh, most of that's in the bumper. That's not actually interior space and bed space. It's very, very similar. Yeah, it, it's actually not that short. It's it's over 200 mm-hmm. inches, it's somewhere yeah. between 201 and 204. Its price do, tag is certainly smaller, though. That's the loom, key part. You loom over it when you look down mm-hmm. on it from a curb. That doesn't happen with a midsize or a full size. Mm-hmm. But in terms of trying to park it, it's going to be like trying to park an S-Class or at least the old short wheelbase S-Class we don't get anymore. It is pretty big. You're right about that. It is yep. a long vehicle. It's just um, a – it's it's similarly – when you look at the construction, it is a, it is similar in, in, in most dimensions to Ranger except yeah. that it, it lacks the frame. So that drops the roof height down without actually shrinking the inside. Yeah, unibody. Basically, you just sort of, exactly. you know, pop that out. And then there's a little bit less ride height, et cetera, in, in, in that uh, that vehicle. But it that that's it is an interesting twist. I, I think Ford was surprised how many people were interested in the hybrid because it is so affordable. It's just over $20,000 for uh, a 40-mile-per-gallon hybrid. It is front-wheel drive. You don't get all-wheel drive in the hybrid but eminently practical vehicle and uh, pretty darn good looking. I think it shocked everybody. And in a lot of the major markets for trucks, you know, the American South, the West, Southern California, there, there's never been an insistence on four wheel drive. A lot of two wheel drive, rear wheel drive trucks have been sold in those markets. So being front wheel drive only, especially with the fuel economy and the price considerations that come with it, that's not a real, it's not a real impediment for something like the Maverick. I do think car prices now, if we talk about 2023, it's interesting to me that we're starting to see a lot of unsold inventory. For the first time, I'm starting yes. to see articles about people who have uh, you know, anniversary Hellcats on the lot, who have Grand Wagoneers and Wagoneers who say they're actually sitting, which was not the case mm-hmm. six months ago. And it seems to be that mainly these are tales about vehicles sitting for 30 days, 60 days. So basically we've gone back to pre-pandemic lot dwell time in a good year. Um, You know, this is not 190, 200 day lot dwell time, mind you. So keeping that in mind, uh, we are seeing these these, uh, inventory levels creep up in some segments. Uh, And that's to be expected as interest rates rise. Um, You know, obviously the bigger expensive vehicles are going to be a little bit harder to shift. So that's going to affect them. Um, And desirable vehicles are continuing to be desirable. We still just, you know, don't see any inventory around of Broncos, even though those tend to be kind of expensive. Order books have barely reopened for a hot second on Mavericks and Lightnings, et cetera. Um, And we've seen similar issues uh, with the hot models from pretty much everybody out there, whether we're talking about a RAV4 Prime or, uh, you know, whatever the the um, the current hottest uh, Toyota product and Honda product or whatever is. Now, it's important to remember right now that where we are in terms of pricing is at an all-time high. Half-ton trucks, which is the most popular vehicle class in the country, it's about $65,000. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting to me was that some of the highest, and of course, cars, in general, which includes SUVs, crossovers, pickups, um, and the few cars left on the market. It's about 48,000, it's about $48,500. That's the average price of a new vehicle in the United States right now. 
Back in 2019, the average price was about one third lower. It was about 30%. Now, that's not simply a matter of inflation or interest rates. That by itself would not explain such a huge escalation. A big part of this yeah. is premiumization, where the vehicles that are being made mm -hmm. and were made during the pandemic recovery were high margin, high priced vehicles for which parts could be obtained in smaller numbers to generate a bigger profit. And when supply yeah. chains were seized up, it made a lot of sense to focus on the Grand Wagoneers, the F-150 right. Platinums, the vehicles that were going to bring in margin without large production numbers. That is one of the reasons why now we see a higher average price. It's not just that we're seeing inflation or loan costs increase. The vehicles themselves are literally more premium spec than they were before. And that is totally logical because they wanted to maximize profit. They knew volume was going to be an issue. If you want to try and have uh, you know, similar profits with lower volume, you got to either raise the price or just try and sell the higher price trims. And they managed to shift both of those realities. Uh, and then, of course, dealer markups were there because they were selling lower volume. So you have to mark up the car to make everything work. But everybody was doing runaway profits uh, during the pandemic as a result of these these coordinated events. And it has been a little bit difficult to have that uh, that that trajectory turned downwards and start deflating uh, those markups, et cetera. So part of the reason we've seen some dwell time stay high in some vehicles like Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer is that some of the dealers, it seems like, uh, just didn't want to start dropping their dealer markups. They were still trying to you know get a three thousand four thousand dollar dealer markup on an already eighty thousand dollar car that has a lot of profit built into it and they were willing to let it hang out on the lot to get a bit more whether or not that changes in a more drastic fashion we don't know because we aren't really seeing too many discounts on the hood yet we do see a few car companies out there offering zero percent financing mazda for instance is offering zero percent financing on practically everything except for the new cx90 that's a little surprising um, but we have seen 0% financing return from some of the traditional car companies as well. Uh, Nissan, of course, Ford. We haven't seen 0% from any of the Stellantis brands because they don't have a, an in-house finance division. Um, but we will likely see it from more car companies soon. And we definitely have inexpensive financing from pretty much everybody. Uh, there's you know, definitely um, uh, discounted financing. So the cost of their money from the treasury or from whatever bank they're borrowing from, et cetera, is definitely higher than their lending money to you for the 3.9 or 4% financing offers. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning that uh, this is going to be a trend that's going to develop more towards the second half of the year as we have more clarity on everything from the debt limit hike and whether or not it's going to happen to budget fights in the fall the debt limit hike might occur again in december and then of course we've got macroeconomic trends that are difficult to predict but cox auto has at least made a wager proposing that we're going to see production outpace actual sales by about six mm percent -hmm averaged over the full year. Now, I'm not sure that describes the conditions on the ground now, but if economic currents become turbulent by July, August, September, especially the turn of the model year yeah. when vehicles are on lots, we could start to see more favorable deals. So if you can hold your fire in the market, and particularly if you have cash to spend, if you're not interest yeah. rate sensitive, late summer, early fall is going to be the place to really start looking. And that's just based on projections we've got now. All of this is subject to change. Yep, indeed. 
And uh, the winds are very hard to predict. You know, I, I, I hate to prognosticate because my crystal ball hasn't been overly accurate in the past, but I suspect that we will gradually return to life pre-pandemic. A lot of car companies claim that that's not the model they wanted. They wanted to move more towards an order model. They wanted a less dealer inventory, et cetera. It's so easy to slide back into those routines. That's probably what we're going to see. And I would not be surprised if at some point in the future, this may be a long way off, but if at some point in the future, Tesla ended up actually moving to more of a traditional model where there was a fixed price and then there were discounts rather than adjusting the price up and down everywhere. Because one thing that we have seen in used car pricing over the last uh, 24 months, or sorry, last 12 months rolling average is that Teslas have had the most uh price deflation in the used market of any brand in North America. It's been absolutely massive slide, about 30 something percent, uh, depending on the uh, the model that you're taking a look at. I believe uh, company wide, it was a solid 20 something percent there on the, the price of used Teslas over the last year. And that is almost entirely linked to the massive drop in new Tesla pricing. So anytime you drop the MSRP of an existing model, the used car market is going to take a tumble because obviously you could just buy a new one for that same price. It's very logical. But what's interesting about that is when you take a look at used price trends uh, and then take a look at cash on hood trends, how much, how much dealer incentive, how much manufacturer incentive is on the hood of these things, that does not seem to have as rapid of an impact on the used car market pricing for those same vehicles. So back in the day where pickup trucks would routinely vacillate from you know, $5,000 cash on the hood this year to $10,000 next year to maybe only $3,000 the year after that, basically following those sales trends, those those uh, subsidies essentially from the manufacturer, they, they swung hugely season to season and year to year, but you did not see that same sort of huge swing in the used truck market uh, for those same models. So I would suspect at some point in time, Tesla might be interested in really stabilizing the price of used Teslas, since they are selling so many used Teslas. If you're recycling through the Tesla system or leasing, since they don't want you to buy out your lease anymore, um, they're going to get them back and then they're going to try and resell them. So they may be interested in used market stability. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, Tesla has, and all of this is due to discounting, uh, Tesla has seen a tremendous slide in the value of its cars selling secondary uh, that, that runs far ahead of the general market. Now, through the spring of this year, it's not over, but we've seen a persistent trend of lower year-on-year used car sale values, and even month to month, we've seen a slide uh, between about three and 6% in wholesale mm -hmm. values of used cars. These are the prices that dealers are paying to get used cars. So yeah. deflation of prices in the used car space is definitely a real thing right now. And just given the sheer magnitude percentage wise of Tesla drops, they're a big part of that, um, which leads us to kind of the next question, which is A, is the EV price war a real thing? And B, will it spread to the rest of the auto market? It is definitely a real thing. Uh, just look at look at Ford that had to lower prices on the Mach-E, uh, especially if they want to try and, and maintain that momentum of number two, basically in the segment for that, that particular sales segment. We have Model Y, then we have Mach-E. That is, of course, if you toss out Model 3, which would otherwise be next. Um, but still, you know, large number of Mach-E's being sold. And if they're really intent on ramping production up to 150, 200,000 units a year, 
they could be a very solid number two option in the U.S. I could see a decent number of Model 3 shoppers going to Mach-E because it's set somewhere between Model 3 and Model Y size and shape and performance, etc. It's a a very, very solid option. Um, But they're not going to be able to get to that place unless they can keep dropping prices and, and really compete on price with Tesla. Now, in reality, this is not a problem for Ford because the margin at a traditional car company is actually fairly good. When you take a look at Tesla's quote unquote record margin, remember that that is the margin of the manufacturer and the dealer network joined together in essence. And when you take a look at a traditional sales model, you know, you're, they say, well, you know, Tesla's margin is 20 something percent. Well, if you take a look at BMW's margin, dealer plus BMW, their margin is about 10% higher than Tesla. So it's, it's decently larger. Um, And a Stellantis or uh, a Honda, they're actually even bigger as far as the margin. Uh, Stellantis has a fantastic uh, profit margin, even outside of their dealer network. So these car companies do have a lot of room that they can push pressure on pricing. And they're much more capable of losing money for longer periods of time than even a Tesla could. So if Ford wanted to sell the Mach-E 200,000 units at a loss every year, they could do that if they wanted to. They have the resources to make that happen. Whether or not they will, though, that is a separate question. But it definitely seems like it. Lucid, even in their precarious financial position, they've essentially been discounting uh, the air as well. They've been putting $7,500 on leases. It's expected to continue. They may even be dropping prices. There have been a decent number of rumors that prices will be dropping there. Um, In certain desirable models where there is no competition, we see prices going in the opposite direction. So we definitely see that impact. Uh, Lightning has certainly seen a meteoric rise in its pricing since the model was announced. There is no $40,000 work truck anymore. It's absolutely gone out the window. Um, We'll see how that pricing trajectory goes with the Ram Rev because I had expected the Ram Rev to be a lot more expensive. And they actually were pretty upfront and said that it's not going to go over $100,000. And honestly, I'd expected that big battery, fancy interior model to go up into the six figures. They said, nope, it's not going to go that high. Um, We should be pleasantly surprised on pricing, whatever that means. Um, And then, of course, we have the new Silverado and and Sierra EVs coming from GM on on top of the Tesla, if it ever happens. But I I don't think that we will see the same sort of pricing more in the truck segment because truck shoppers, if manufacturers like Chevy, Ford, Ram can convince truck shoppers to buy an EV, they would go that direction much more likely than they would to buy a Tesla um, or or any other non-mainstream truck manufacturer. I think we've seen that in the small truck Uh, success in the United States. There's certainly a segment for Toyota and has been growing over time, but it's taken them decades and decades to cater to that Tacoma audience. They've never really been able to do it with with Tundra. Nissan was never able to do it with Titan. And if they couldn't, after making really quite reasonable trucks, I don't see Tesla being able to to really come in and capture that classic truck buyer. They're probably going to be pulling Tesla shoppers that maybe want a truck in, but the F-150 buyer is just going to buy a Lightning if they want to go electric. Yeah, I think that we covered a couple of different ideas there. I mean, obviously, the $7,500 on the Lucid, that's mm-hmm. old-fashioned American cash on the hood. That that doesn't bring them within range of the federal tax credit. It's it's purely just money to better compete with the likes of, of Tesla and maybe to try to lure you out of a fully loaded Rivian yeah. or F-150. Um, so that's cash on the hood. Cash on the hood will absolutely come back. It's been around in the auto industry since Ford's had 
hand accelerators and planetary gearboxes that you shifted with your feet. They've been around forever. Yep. Incentives will always come back. Cash on the hood will return. Sure as the sun will rise. Second, I think there's going to be a limit to how low Tesla can cut prices. A lot of the price cuts were to bring certain models within range of the tax credit in the United States. But where they're really going to face price pressure is in China, where they have a huge footprint and market commitment. And they're going to have to try harder in the future mm -hmm. to win sales there than they will in the US because they have domestic Chinese firms that have scale, that have price advantages built in, uh, that will be able to compete with them on margin and price in ways they're not facing from domestic US legacy makers. Yeah. Um, the other thing too is these all these high priced trucks. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that Tesla will be bringing its Cybertruck into a market in which it isn't the first, second, and maybe even the third significant competitor. Yeah. They're facing all of the big three, potentially, if the Cybertruck launch lingers too far into 2024. And Ford is already there. Chevy will be shortly. And even Ram is getting a running start, might launch neck and neck with the Cybertruck. Look back to 2008 when Toyota launched the Tundra. People were talking about the end of big three truck dominance. They were talking about Toyota snapping their necks like twigs. But the big three never, never phoned in their half ton truck design. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to do that yep. with their electric trucks either. Tesla's going to be entering a crowded segment as maybe the fourth entrant. And without any clear technological advantages, or dealership network yeah. advantages or customer loyalty advantages. I really do it's think, be, like you said, yeah, it's, it's going to be gonna Tundra. Be yeah. yeah, it's going to be the Tesla Tundra. That's that's my thought there, um, because the truck buyers are loyal. They are. And more importantly, the F-150 Lightning, the Silverado and the Ram, they're, they're not going to be mediocre products. They're not going to be compromises. Yeah. The small battery in the Ram is over 160 kilowatts. The big battery is over, what, 220, 230? Yeah. And if that's it's, under $100,000, goodbye Cybertruck. Yeah, it's it's going to be a big, big deal. And when you take a look at it, I think this is this is the Americans to screw up. And it's just like the mid-sized truck market. When you take a look at Tacoma, Tacoma sales were always good, but they didn't get really good until everybody else abandoned it. They yes. got really good when Ram ditched the Dakota, when Ford dropped the Ranger, when GM dilly-dallied with the mid-sized truck market for a while. That's when Tacoma actually went back. And then the other companies said, well, gee, they're selling, you know, 100 at the time, about 100,000 units of these a year. Oh, my Lord, what did we do? We shouldn't have given that up. And then the sales went to 150. And Ford said, well, we should get back in with the Ranger. The sales hit 200. And everybody said, wow, we missed the boat. Now we're at a quarter million. And everybody's thinking, you know, we, we, we messed it up. Yeah, and I think back in the 2000s, I remember in the in the mid 2000s, the talk was that with the Nissan Titan, the Toyota Tundra, big full size trucks being made in America with Japanese brand names, mm -hmm. that was the end of the big three. And it wasn't the end of the big three. And it's really interesting to see whether well, how Tesla is going to compete, because I, I agree with you that they're going to cannibalize like they're going to cannibalize plaids. People are going to be trading in their plaids for cyber trucks. Yep. That's your cyber truck buyer right there or the guy who didn't want to wait for the roadster. Yep, exactly. And, you know, I, I've always believed that 
that's where Tesla should have spent the money uh, in the first place, was on the Roadster, on the high-performance track versions of the Plaid, uh, the Model S that we're seeing, et cetera. Make, make the more expensive, more profitable trims of the existing product line. Go down that performance uh, rabbit hole, et cetera, with the, with the, the Roadster. That's probably going to be more profitable because they can charge a lot for those kinds of products. It's probably going to make more money in the end. And the business case exists. Be the electric Porsche. You can have cars, trucks, sports cars. Sell it with a colossal profit margin with huge customer loyalty and a great business case. Um, I don't think if in the long run they want to be the electric Toyota, they're going to succeed. They're talking about 50% year after year over year growth year after year. That's no. not real in the auto no. industry. This no. is a mature industry. The markets are saturated. They may grow, but not 50%. If that's their expectation, they're going to disappoint investors. And yeah, probably it's, customers too. The the smaller you are, the easier it is to grow by 50%. But by the time you're Tesla size now, it's really hard to grow by 50% every year. Um, I'm just not sure it's even rational. One answer, what was your favorite ever movie car? Favorite ever movie car. I might have to go all the way back to uh, Back to the Future and go with a DeLorean because I kind of wanted one when I was a kid and I didn't at the time realize how bad they were. I just thought they looked cool. So I would go with that. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. I think I'm going to go with the Vanishing Point Challenger. And it was funny to me because back when I was a fan of that movie back in high school, I had it on VHS. You know, I'd talk about the Dodge Challenger and people would scratch their head. Now I talk about challengers and people are like, oh, yeah, I'm a Dodge diehard. I'm like, where were these Dodge diehards in the 90s? Where are all these Mopar guys when performance meant like a neon ACR? I don't know. That That's my was, favorite car. You know, I would I would I, I would say that Dodge has had one of the best success stories in the automotive industry in yeah. in coming back because you're right. They were. That was a weird time point where they weren't selling anything that anybody wanted to aspire to. No one aspired to a Dodge Shadow. Like you Born aspired to you aspired to be able to hide the fact that you went to work in a Dodge Shadow. Um, you parked it at the very far end of the parking lot. Um, it was the K car that nobody wanted. Um, and you know, I could have seen myself in a Chrysler Imperial for some reason because it was really crazy cheap and you can get the weird stretched one. But at any rate. No one wanted the other ones. And then now somehow they're they're really skewing young. I mean, Dodge's uh, the a lot of people make fun of Dodge, claiming that they're all, you know, uh, subprime lenders and they're all bad credit people and they're, they're all V6s. Yeah, none of this is true. Like Dodge Dodge sells way more V8s than V6s. Um, they're skewing younger and Dodge does not have a captive finance arm to give you subprime lending. So they're all you're you're borrowing from Santander Bank and they're yeah. not interested in losing money, which is why Dodge has been so incredibly profitable over the last uh, 15 years or so. Um, it's really been an interesting twist. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many of you are watching this online, but I'm wearing my Oldsmobile shirt and. You know, Oldsmobile went the way of the Dodo back in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And if you'd asked me at the time, like, what's the fate of Dodge in 2023 if they have no captive finance arm, they lose the entire Ram truck line, and their vehicle platform is 20 years old? I yeah. would have been like, they're gone. It's, it's yeah. over. That's the end of the story. They're stronger yeah. than they've ever been. And as much as I liked the Intrepid and as well as the Intrepid sold, it really sold well in the United States in the 90s and 2000s, the early part. It was not exciting in that way. No one no one was like, 
yes, I will sell a kidney and buy a Dodge Intrepid. Um, but now people would be out there going, you know what? How much can I get for a kidney? Maybe I could get myself a demon. Yeah, I mean, the Dodge Intrepid was the Chrysler Concorde with less stuff. That's that's mm -hmm. my childhood. That's my childhood as a Mopar guy when Mopar was so uncool. Alex, yep. where can they find us online? All the usual places, the YouTubes, the TikToks, the uh, the Facebooks, etc. Be sure and find us on Facebook, of course. Uh, Facebook, uh, the Auto Buyer's Guide over there. Um, and uh, we will see you next week. Toodaloo.